Alex. Hello there. I'm Dean and we are the Books Boys. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it? Books. Also, welcome to the Books Boys and welcome from the Books Boys. So that's... Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought that was cool. I was thinking about that today, that it works because we are the people named in the show title. So the two in front, the opposites. And also Alfred. Yes. There it is. Episode 34. I love that intro. It was great. <laughs> Fantastic. We nailed it. <laughs> We're keeping that. <laughs> yes, that was that was unbeatable intro there. Love and it. Myself, the Dean, joined by Playboy Alex. Alex. <laughs> How are we doing? Doing just fine, doing just fine. I I had a decent month with uh books. How about you? Pretty good. It's been a busy month. I th- every time I say, oh, it's going to be such a busy month, I'm probably going to only read like two books, then I read like six. <laughs> it seems to always happen. Um, but yeah, look, I started out with some classics, some more Zola, um, because we I liked the last one, some Balzac, because we've reviewed a lot of Balzac, and I thought that it was only fair to let you hear one. Um, yeah. One for the Americans, a, a baseball uh, book. Something about Dickens, which I'll get to, since you did Oliver Twist last month. It all kind of fits together. And what about yourself? I read Shirley Jackson's Haunting on Hill House. And uh, another one coming up. We're doing this podcast in two halves at first. Um, Breaking the fourth wall. Breaking the fourth wall. Yeah, we have to. It's going to be long. And I'm. We are literally talking to an audience. So we had to, uh, we're going to split up our recording session. Yes. So I have another one coming up, but uh, I'll get into that later. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of thoughts about it yet, but we'll get there. If we're recording this in over two sessions, I I can't guarantee I can afford to pay Alfred to come back. He's not the cheapest. He's not the cheapest. We'll we'll, we'll get him. We'll get him. So um, guys, welcome to to Books Boys. We're going to talk about what we've read this month, but just before we do... Um, you can always, of course, head to booksboys.com, get our website, links to all the different places you can listen to the podcast. Uh, there's some merchandise and things on there as well. But most importantly, there's a link over to the Patreon, patreon.com slash booksboys. And we have all of our other shows. We've been doing some Playboys, Playboys. we've been doing Greek plays. Um, on the free feed, you're currently getting old episodes that we did, you're getting some Shakespeare's and things like that. But if you head over to Patreon, you'll get the Greek plays that we're doing now, all the newest stuff. And there's other stuff on there as well. I just did a new film, Fellows, um, The Guest with Saloni, one of my my favorite films um, of all time. There's some Dark Place Dreamers with our with our buddy Robert on there as well. I did a Music Man episode. So usually there's something going up every week on there. How is the Hammer House of Horror? decidedly mediocre which is just what i wanted 
<laughs> yeah, you know, that is that is fair. <laughs> yeah. So look, let's get let's get stuck in. I'm gonna start with Zola. And the reason I want to start with Zola is because for the first time ever, I read a Zola last month, um Therese Racan. And I said that it was fantastic. I really liked it. I I said it was pretty sad in parts, but overall, I I gave it a pretty good review. I, I liked the style. So now I've read, um, Germinal. Germinal. Terminal, yeah. yeah. This is the famous one. Yes, th- I was going to say this is the one that I have heard of, and I know a little bit of the plot too. Mm-hmm. I'm. I might as well just say it. I, I didn't love it. I thought last okay. month was infinitely better. Um. Which is maybe shocking because, like, I mean, even looking around online, generally getting positive reviews, it's considered his major work, kind of magnum opus. Like everyone says, this is the this is the one to go for as his signature work. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was fine. I just didn't. It lacked the romance element. I think that the other one had. There's well, maybe this one still has a romance element to it. I believe, right? Yeah, okay, so there there is a little... I mean, I guess the last book was just about that pure, almost Wuthering Heights romance, the love I turning see. to hate, you know, just the passion boiling over, becoming almost violent. There's none of that in this book. Yeah, there is a small fair. romance. But it's secondary, fair yeah. enough, fair enough. Now, in theory, you'd think I'd love this book because it's essentially about a socialist yeah. cause. Um it is about a, about strikes in in eighteen sixties France, um. So the book was written, I believe, eighteen sort of mid eighteen eighties, eighty four, eighty five. Look, I don't want to say it's a bad book. I did like it. I I just didn't love it. You know. Mm-hmm. So our main character is a chap called Etienne. This is part of an overall series from Zola. So some of the characters appear before and after as well. So Etienne has appeared before in other uh, books, um. He arrives in this town. I'm picturing him kind of like in the Incredible Hulk show. He's got his little knapsack over his shoulder and he's, <laughs> he's dandered into town, you know? I so, can imagine that. He arrives into town and he's like, oh, we've, we've got the, the coal mines going here. And then the first guy he meets is like, yep, I've been working those coal mines since I was eight years old. And it's like, oh, okay, cool. So there's definitely no working regulations here. And... Mm-hmm. There's like, yeah, it's great. You get to work in there in the dark all day and night for 60 years. And like now I can't really breathe properly and I've got various health issues. It's fantastic. And he kind of realizes that that is the whole time. Like, it's just, it's, it is a mining time. That's all they have. That's their entire economy. And yep. that's it. Like, that's the aspiration. Even the girls are pushing carts around and working in the mines. He meets a girl, Catherine, who he likes. And um, so that's where the slight romance comes in. But isn't yeah, she it, the daughter of someone important in the mine as well? <clears throat> so yeah, her dad is there as well. Um, she also has a boyfriend, Chaval. Her oh. dad is her dad is relatively important. He's considered like one of the kind of he's not the he's, he's not the boss or anything like that. But he's kind of just respected, I guess is the, is the way to say it. Hmm. Um. And they, like, that's that's fine. It it is what it is. But basically, Etienne decides I'm gonna start a strike. Now he builds up to that a little bit, so he you know has to get himself part of the society first and become a respected member of the society. So there's a little bit of time passing as we we get through that. 
Um, and then, yeah, eventually they go on strike. Now, there is another chap who's much more extreme. He's an anarchist, um, and he actually wants to, you know, lead to violence. Um, and spoiler alert, towards the end of the book, there is a lot of violence. Um, it almost becomes, in parts near the end, it almost becomes an action thing instead of this sort of drama about a strike. It really, really changes. Um in terms of the other chap, so I mentioned Cheval. He is Catherine's boyfriend, but she initially introduces herself as being single. And then when when Cheval turns up, Etienne feels a bit lied to. And she says, look, I don't want him to be my boyfriend. But basically, he's very possessive and violent. And so the book also touches on issues of domestic abuse, essentially. And, you know, that's... Something that was one of my favorite parts of the book really was actually their love story and seeing how does that work out? Are they going to overcome the obstacle, get her away from from Cheval? And is is Eddie Anne going to end up with Catherine? Because I do like the love story at the end of the day. That's something that grips me more than anything else in a novel. But at the same time, yeah, they've got their strikes. There's what's funny is the 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 boss because he's not really the boss. He's one of those I've got to check with corporate type bosses. So okay. no matter what's happening, like we need this pay rise, and he's always like, "Yeah, look, I I can't give you a pay rise. I got to check with uh, the guys back in Paris. So that's gonna be a give me a couple weeks to travel there and back and do some meetings." It's an interesting strategy though, because it always allows time for for them to cool off. You know, they they come in really really upset about something, and he's like, "Cool, I'll just head over to Paris there, get an answer for you, be back in a fortnight," and it's kind of a good way for them to pull off steam almost like and, and not really achieve their objectives then you know um whilst totally wiping himself of any blame or responsibility um but Etienne's in there you know arguing with him he, and they're all afraid of the boss but Etienne isn't um but the interesting thing is things go badly for the boss in the end his wife ends up cheating on him and he becomes really miserable and he totally fails to empathize with the workers because by this point they've been on strike for a long time and they are starving and that's why it's turning violent and that's why the anarchists are getting involved and the oh. police and the army come in and it's all really bad. And you know we're talking people crawling through the streets screaming for bread because they're starving and they've got no food. And the boss is in there thinking like, you think you're sad? What's bread going to do? You know, like, I'm sad. Because, you know, my <laughs> wife's cheated on, on me and my, you know, relationship's fallen apart. And um, look at my job. It's a disaster with all you strikers. You know, you know he totally fails to give any empathy. He's just like, yeah, I'm the sad one. It. You know? Yeah. So that's almost, oh, it's almost funny because it's so ridiculous. You know, <laughs> his total lack of empathy. I Is that ridiculous though? Like right now there's, the writer strike, the SAG strike over in LA, and basically everyone's like, "No, we're just gonna not get writers now. We're gonna use AI or whatever, and or <sighs> we got enough money, we don't really care. You'll just have to starve." But, like, no, that that sounds very realistic. What you're saying? I usually try to refrain from getting political, um, but I still think at the same time this won't come as a shock to anyone. I'm not a massive fan of the old capitalism. Uh, so <laughs> I just put that out there. Or rich bosses. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But look, it's kind of a... 
that that bit's funny almost. But the, the, in general, the novel has a very serious tone. It's a bit plodding, though, to be honest. Like we're it's quite long. Just double checking. It's almost you know almost seven hundred pages. Which what you're saying, like, strike. it sounds like, yeah, it really drags out. It's just a strike. And it's like, I'm going to go to Paris for a fortnight. Like, how many pages is that? <laughs> yeah, it's, and we don't even really see what he's doing in Paris, but we just see them killing time till he gets back almost, you know? Mm. Like, it's a lot of, essentially, this could be a short story. It's like, there's a strike. It's really sad. They all need bread. Like, but why is it 700 pages almost, you know? Like, it really, really dragged. Like, Part of that is the effect because you see them getting hungrier and getting more desperate, right? You know, mm-hmm. and and it leading to the violence. So it's not necessarily a bad move to stretch it out a little bit. I just, I was bored reading it in parts, and I was really having to will myself to be like, can I handle fifty pages today? You know, because it it wasn't an enjoyable read. Whereas the the other one, I was like, oh my god, they're gonna kill each other. They're so in love, they're gonna kill each <laughs> other. You know. Okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them are going to be hits, some of them not so much. But yeah, it yeah. sounds like maybe he was just a big fan of Hugo. Hugo, I don't know. Nah. There is a part near the end, not to give too many spoilers, but there's a part near the end where it almost... They all get in, in some kind of dangerous peril um, and lives are risked and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I don't want to go too much into it. And there is a nice touching passionate romantic moment near the end um but there's always this idea that the sort of communist international as they just refer to as the international but it's this kind of you know the the overall kind of umbrella communist group will kind of step in and help but they they never really do or they don't have the power to or they can't or they're not really a, a, a homogenous group you know i suppose communism is one of those things where people are you know he's starting a strike in this town and let's hope that in a hundred other towns someone's doing the same thing but is there really enough of an umbrella organization to step in and help? And the answer is no, there's not. They're, they're kind of on their own, you know? Mm. Which is a shame. Especially this time period, yeah. Yeah. But look, it's an enjoyable enough book. It's just not... I think, honestly, if it was cut in half, it would be quite nice. That's my honest, my honest uh, answer on that one. So... From Zola to our good friend Honoré de Balzac. Um, this one I liked a little bit more. But I, again, I should stress I didn't love it. I've read better Balzac. So it's kind of a mixed bag. You see, I was going to ask, yeah, we, we've we talked about Balzac, but you haven't really told me much whether you love him or think he's just okay. It sounds like, since we haven't really talked about it, you think he's all right but you keep reading him, so good to... He's one of those right, authors yeah. that has one or two fantastic books and then maybe like many, many, many middle-of-the-road books, you know? Ah, the Stephen King of his day. Essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you read um, Old Gorio or Peregorio. That's that's the big one. That's the one that people love. Um, there's been others. I can't remember off the top of my head. There's been at least one or two others that I've reviewed before that I really, really liked. But then there's been like 10, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, standard. What we call the Gentleman's Three, which is like three out of five, nothing wrong with it. Kind of, you know. Yeah. Essentially, that's that's most Middle of, of the room. Yeah. Okay. But look, this one is called Eugenia Grande. 
And by the way, the two books that I've read are both French books. And for some reason, I, I read them both in Spanish. Um, <laughs> I, I, that's the only place I could pick them up. But right, yeah. Grande. This one is a little bit better in the, in the sense that we get a bit more of that forlorn, melancholy, broken romance type vibe that, that I, I like so much. Hmm. So Eugenie is... Um, well, she's this lady, obviously. She's just turned 23. And her parents are there with her. And her dad is kind of like, right, we got to get her married off. So it's it's one of those. We've got to put some attention on getting her married. The mum is quite nice, but kind of weak. The dad is the overbearing one. Yeah, The dad is very wealthy. And he's also an extreme miser. He will not spend any money. And he gives the mom, he's like a millionaire, but he gives the mom like six francs a month for their housekeeping or something. So the house is falling apart, even though it's a grand mansion, you know. So how did he get that money in the first place? I get just saving the entire time, I guess. Some business deal. He's kind of crooked as well, you know, so Uh... but it's very much the money all comes in and gets locked in my cabinet and none of it ever goes back out, you know. Mm. And there's this cousin, um, well, I guess he's called Charles. He's called Carlos, obviously, in, in the version I read. But um, Carlos comes in and he's a cousin. So the other relatives are like, you know, your uncle's kind of, I wouldn't go there. Like, he's not really a good guy. But he goes in and he, you know, he hangs out with them for a bit. And him and Eugenie kind of fall in love and they make some promises to each other. Um, but sadly, Carlos's dad becomes bankrupt and oh. commits suicide because of the shame of the bankruptcy. And basically, the uncle then is like, you know, this was foolish of your father, because bankruptcy puts a blemish on our family. (laughs) Um, Liquidation would not have. Liquidation, he very stresses, liquidation is a different thing and would have been fine. But bankruptcy, that official, like having that word attached to you, Mm. you know? So... There's not even like a I'm so sorry your dad's dead moment. It's just like, yeah, well, you brought shame <laughs> on the family. So they pack him off to India. They're like, you got to go. You can't stick around here. And there's some debate about whether or not he's liable for his father's debts. Um, but they send him off. And this is where we realize that the dad's not a good chap, um, Monsieur Grande. Because he's like, oh, you've got some bits and pieces, some jewelry and gold and trinkets, you know. How about I just, I'll take those for you and I'll buy them. I, I value them at X amount. And he like massively undervalues everything and basically, you know, swindles him out of a lot of money. Uh, and then they're looking at the will and he finds ways to profit off the will as well. So he's increasing his own wealth, like against his family's best interests. Um, So the girl, Eugenie, she actually gives, she has a quantity of gold and jewelry and things herself. And she gives it all up for her lover. And they make a pact, you know, he'll come back. He's gone for seven years, during which time the father finds out that she gave away some gold and imprisons her in her room with nothing but bread and water. Makes sense. Yeah. So she's it. That's it. He puts her on the bread and water and she's trapped in her room. She can't leave. There's a maid who goes in and brings her food every day and and I guess a few minutes of conversation. And that's really all she gets for for a period of, of several years. Um, meanwhile, the mum is sort of strawed about this, that her health declines from the stress and the anxiety of it and whatever else. And the mum is literally dying and she keeps saying, please make up with our daughter. Like, you are literally killing me. 
And this guy is so obsessed with the money that he's happy to let his wife die and let his daughter be imprisoned and unhappy. Okay. And this guy is getting old as well. Like he's only got a few years of life left in him and the money's all going to go to the daughter anyway. But he's just, yeah. it's, that's just his character. He's just a miser and that's all he knows. Hmm. All right. So I think I'm going to give spoilers on this one because otherwise it's very unclear what's going to happen. Essentially, the mother does die. Um, poor Eugenie, like it's all going going horribly for her. Um, the father, basically he swindles her again. So she comes into some money and then he swindles her again. He's like, I'll take care of that and I'll pay you a hundred a month. And then a year later, he hasn't paid her anything. Like, and it would have been pittance to him to pay her, you know, and her own relatives are trying to step in and like bring legal suits. And she's like, no, I've got to respect my father's wishes, even though he imprisoned me there for those few few years. And then eventually the saving grace is Carlos is going to come back. Carlos makes a lot of money in the slave trade. Comes back and is like, oh, yeah, I don't care about you. I'm going to like marry this countess lady and then I'm going to be like a high society guy. I don't care about her, but it'll improve my stake in in society. So now he only cares about money. Yes. And very sadly, they end up, well, not sadly because we don't like him anymore, but they finally make the dad's debt bear on the son. So that reduces his state in society and messes up the marriage. And Eugenie's behind kind of revealing part of that. That's kind of her revenge, essentially, with the the family. (laughs) And then she marries the rich guy and she says, look, you're a rich old guy. You'll get the money when I die, but you can never sleep with me. We're never going to consummate the marriage. And he's like, yeah, whatever, let's do it. So she ends up actually being much, much wealthier than the cousin or anyone else. Um, but she's still sad and miserable and she's just alone. Yeah. She, or her family's dead. She, she's got no one. And then when her old husband dies, she's this rich widow and all these people are calling, wanting to marry her. Just like the beginning of the book or the end of the book is the same. It's like she's a suitor and people are, are potentially coming to see if, if they can marry oh, her. Oh, okay. Um, but her whole life has essentially been a waste of time. It could be read as like a circle, almost. Yeah. Huh. But it's a sad, miserable life that, that she leads, where no one loved her. And she always says to the servant girl, Nanon, you're the only person who actually cares about me. You know, hmm. everybody else here. I think the mom did a little bit, you know, but the mom was kind of weak. And that's yeah. it. Wow. I mean, that sounds like your type of story, though. Something that yeah, really, yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really get behind. So this so. one was really, you know, compared to the last book, and, and again, like I like socialism and the cause. It just wasn't a fun read. This was a fun read. You know, this was mm. like, yeah, I, I am, right. I'm here for for this. You'll see here as well. All these books are falling apart. They're all like second and third hand. They they're falling uh. apart as I read them, which was very very difficult. You to glue them all together. Um, but yeah, I, I'm going to say Eugene Grande. I'm going to give it the thumbs up. I I rather liked it. Still not not the best, Balzac, of course. There's some that are much, much sadder. And this one still took a wee while to get going. You know, in the beginning, it's like, oh, yeah, they don't really care about her. And you're not sure if the dad's a good guy or a bad guy or not. So there's still a little bit of... And it's only 200 pages. It's quite short. It's still in the second half that it gets going. So it's not fantastic. But it's good. Hmm. Nice. So you would give a recommendation? I, I think I would I would give a recommendation for it. Yeah, I would say if, if you like Balzac, then, then check that one out. Do you know what else I would give a recommendation for? What's that? 
our Patreon, and I have here a little ad, which I will just play right now. The facts that will be presented are true. Yes, PJ. Hello there. Now, PJ, what have we learned about Shakespeare? That's all we learned. Robert and Playboy Alex. Doing all right. Glad to be here again. So I've given you those nicknames. I'm not a fan of that one. <laughs> well, that's where people will know you from. That's why you're going to know me from that one. But let's carry on. Anyway. Hello, there. Can you hear it? Join us for Shakespeare Room. Spanish plays and poetry, rock star interviews, film reviews, dark place dreamers, and more. Patreon.com slash books. There we go. Get it. Buy it. Books. Books. And just before we get to your first book, Alex, we have a nice little recommendation from our good friend, uh, He of the Dark Places. And he has apparently read a book called Children of the Dust, which I've never heard of. But let's hear what so he has to say. The only reason I'm actually recommending it to yourself is because it actually has a theme or a moral behind the entire story that I think would be quite interesting to yourself. So the story is broken up into three parts and it's after the atomic bombs actually fall. Like we all, you know, go, undergo nuclear holocaust. Um, and the first... Part of it is quite, you know, it's it's quite a harrowing journey of just a family trying to survive in a fall in the, the fallout, um, which they don't. It's very depressing. I think you'd quite like that aspect of it. The it's second part <laughs> is the government officials actually going into the shelters and you know preserving culture and all of that stuff, and you know preserving their way of life. And the third part is them emerging a few generations later to find out that all of this is irrelevant. Um, there is a society that has thrived on the surface and they, people come out and it's like, well, you should know culture and things like that. And it's like, that actually has no place here and it, it's completely irrelevant. And the point of the story is that um, the old ways are not necessarily the best ways and the people who are, you know, emerged from the bunkers, they view themselves as quite sophisticated and then they realise... Oh, we're actually the dinosaurs. Um, crap. So, might be interesting. It actually does sound really, really interesting. I think I'd... Uh, yeah, I, have to get I, I like the way he point. describes it. Yeah, like and this he gave it. us the recommendation. Originally, he wasn't giving a, a show recommendation. It was part of a, a three-way conversation we were all having about numerous things, and then it ended yeah. up with a book recommendation. So. Yeah, we were talking about what... Yeah, just all sorts of, like culture politics type stuff in our group chat and yeah came up with yeah. that so that's that what really we've been getting up to actually we've been up to a fair few things um as i mentioned i'm and i'll talk more about it on the you know later uh, when we record the second part of this episode i'm about to do a big uh, trip to spain i'm traveling along northern spain from galicia to la rioja six regions in 10 days um, but I also just last month, I did a, a little trip around central Spain. I went to Madrid for some great concerts. I visited Segovia, Avila, um, saw the Snow White uh, Castle in Segovia. I went to Ciudad Real. I went to Toledo, um, which means I traveled a little bit around the La Mancha region where Don Quixote is uh, set and uh, I had an amazing time there. So off on my summer travels. I understand that you've been working. <laughs> I have been in a warehouse that entire time. Ah, <laughs> oh. eh, logistics. It it pays well enough. Making bucks. <laughs> yes. 
to Alex, go back and study more fun stuff <laughs> and yeah. read. Meanwhile, in any free time I get, I've been doing uh, Mexican dancing and salsa. So I've been doing performances and, and, and everything like that. I'm working up for a big August show. So that's a quick snippet of what's happening when we're not reading. But yes. why don't you tell None us None of them happens? care about any they do, of that. They love it. They love it. Yeah. So <laughs> What happens but... when you do read? Right. So uh, Shirley Jackson. So The Haunting of Hill House is one of those books that I really, really enjoyed. 250 pages, very quick. You can read it in one or two days pretty easily. I didn't realize it was a, is a shorter book. Yeah, it really is. Um, you would might know her for The Lottery, a short story that she did. We read that in our middle school. Um, okay. I don't think I know so, it, but I, ha- I have heard of the novel. Yeah, it's she has a twist on it. Uh, it's not a lottery you necessarily want to win. Um, ah, but... Right. Yeah. Um, this one... So I'm going to say it's a great great book, but I'm also going to put an asterisk on it. All right. So this one starts off, you have the character Eleanor. She's your main character here. She was taking care of her mother for a long time. Die. Her mother died and she's now living with her sister and miserable. Her whole life is terrible. She hates being around her family and just wants to escape, wants to fit in, and is happy to go anywhere. Right. Um, the other main character is Theo. Uh, basically, you don't get much of a backstory for her. It's not as important. She kind of has a fight with her roommate. And um, both of them get letters to basically take part in kind of a study on uh, fear, haunting, things like that. And they, because they have some past experience when uh, Eleanor was a child, basically rocks just rained on her house for a whole week or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. No one knows where they came from and her family blames the neighbors, but it's like there was, there were raining rocks. (laughs) (laughs) The neighbors neighbors don't like us. That's what her mother would say. And they have mystical powers to to make it red rocks. Yeah. Theo is actually really interesting because she went to like some other study where they held up like tarot cards and she was able to guess like 17 out of 20, 18 out of 20, 19 out of 20. Right. She never got perfect, but she did really, really well every time. So she had a good connection with the paranormal. Um, So the one leading the study is Dr. Montague, and he is renting from the family that owns Hill House. Um, the other character there is Luke. He's kind of there to keep track of them. Um, he, he's the, I think, nephew of the owner of the house. So he's going to be inheriting it sometime in the future. So those are your four big characters. You also have some others. You have the caretakers of the house. Um, you have the doctor's wife and her I don't even want, I don't know what to call him. He's basically a headmaster at a school for boys, but he's kind of the one driving the car. It feels like a servant, but he's not. Oh, okay. (laughs) But they're kind of a pair because they both really like the paranormal, which is strange. So they go and do certain like seance type stuff, uh, trying to contact the ghosts that live there and, kind of hard to believe them but that doesn't happen until later 
so yeah, the main four arrive. They get some really creepy introductions from the caretaker and especially his wife. Uh, Mrs. Dudley is the wife and she's there taking care of the house. Um, she really only has a few lines, but she repeats them and kind of puts you on edge. She's like, ah, I she's it. like one of those like, creepy sort of ones. I set breakfast out at seven. I clean up by nine. I'm out of here by night. I do not stay in the night. And she says that like four or five times mm. when she's introducing herself. And those are, she doesn't say anything else. She doesn't talk with you. Um, it really is. That's a bit disconcerting. Yeah. <laughs> it's nine o'clock. <laughs> I said, I clean up by nine. Yeah. She's really, really interesting. Um, and you also get a lot from Eleanor, her mental, like you hear her narration throughout a lot of this. And she's like, she, she kind of goes off and creates stories and places for her to fit in uh, as she's driving to the house. Um, and so you kind of feel for her. You know that she really hasn't had any place to call her own. And so once she arrives and meets the other three, she feels like, wow, are, are they judging me? No, we actually get along. And hmm. um, she has some really fun conversations with Theo. They become like sisters in a way. Um, and okay. I, I like, uh, I like the way that they all work. The first night, nothing really happens. Uh, but the second night that they're there, they, uh, they'd already learned a little bit of the history of Hill House, and there's some banging on the doors at night, and you don't know where it's coming from because, like, the boys are chasing like. A projection of a dog that ran through the house a wild okay. goose chase basically while the girls are hearing this loud banging and uh yelling at it to stop it goes up and down the hallway like it's following or trying to find somebody so um, a question inevitably yeah. this is going to involve what what now are some cliches right you know this the banging noises and that kind of stuff did this create those cliches like this is relatively old right well i wouldn't say too old it's from the late 50s i believe 58 okay because the first movie came out in 1963 there was a 99 movie and then a netflix series mm, i think i've uh, seen the 99 one maybe i've seen one no you've anyway. seen the 63 one ah, have i okay. because okay. we watched that together ah there we go <laughs> yes the 99 one is trash do not ah, right right yeah it's one with uh liam neeson uh owen wilson uh Catherine okay, Zeta, no, I've not yeah yeah um Great actors, but they, it was awful. Um, so with this, there's lots of light moments, but at night, everything can change. Uh, another time, basically, Eleanor's trying to sleep, uh, but she's with Theo because basically, I don't know exactly how it happened or remember at this point, but basically, Theo's room just gets covered in blood. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah, as as it you do. So Theo and Eleanor sleeping in the same room. Um and Eleanor uh she's has her hand out and is holding what she thinks is Theo's hand. Oh no. And she it's a bit short in the book, um, but she's thinking to herself, ow, she's really holding my hands really hard with all this banging going on what's going on 
And she realizes at the end of the chapter, no one's holding my hand. Oh, Who was holding my hand? Okay. And it has some really good creepy moments like that. That sounds like it would be one that would catch you off guard. Is it genuinely scary? Yeah. No. Uh, so the thing is, this is creepy. That's the way it. I believe it's meant to be read. Now, when I say it's a great book, I am going to say... So I said it's with an asterisk because I don't know if a lot of people are going to read it the way it's more or less intended to be read. Okay. Because it could just be like, oh, Eleanor's just having random thoughts, and now they're going to the forest, and now they're having breakfast. And it's like, well, her thoughts are meant to be a bit creepy. Mm -hmm. She's starting to, like, fall in love with the house. She feels like, I belong here. Please don't take this away from me. And eventually she kind of starts going mad near the very end of the book. So for me, that would be where the true story and the most interesting part of the story lies then. You know, because if you take that away, it is just, oh, yeah, some creepy things happen. Is she imagining it? Is she not? The end. Yeah. But that story of the kind of going insane and falling in love with the house, almost, you know, losing yourself to the whatever the evil forces in the house. That's the interesting part, right? Yep. That's what I think is really good. And they do that. uh, They set it up very well uh, within like the first 20 pages. She arrives at the house and I think up until like, yeah, page one twenty, one thirty. Um, you have all of that happening, and it's really, really great. Um, because for her, it's very unsettling, and she's like, "But I want to stay. I can't leave. I have nowhere else to go. I basically mm-hmm. stole my sister's car. Like this is where I want to be right now." Yeah. Um, and she also uh kind of falls for Luke a little bit, so and she's like. Another I don't know, reason maybe to stick around, we maybe. can get along. That could be nice. Um, but where I think it sort of fails is that there are a few too many light moments. There are times where they're just like, yeah, this creepy thing happened. We're just going to pretend it didn't. Okay, so right. they just kind of keep going, basically. And then they just get like smiley and happy and laugh. And it's like, no, this should be very unsettling. You should be <laughs> reacting to this. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of like, we're going to go out to the forest. Like, great. You do that like three, four times. There's no reason to. It's just them kind of exploring the house. And yeah, uh, I think they do that a little bit too much. Sometimes yeah. these types of situations, they do lack something to drive the plot forward. Like it's like every horror movie ever. It's like, oh, we could just sit safely indoors. Let's go skinny dipping at 3 a.m. And then someone gets killed, you know, like sometimes these things have to happen, you know? (laughs) Yeah, but nothing really happens while they're out doing that. Um, The other thing that I would say is a bit of a nitpick is that the climax, um, well, kind of leading up to that. So the doctor's wife joins and she is really into ghosts. She really wants to be there and starts talking with some of them and all that, Um, which is fine. She starts sleeping in like the most haunted room and... (laughs) nothing really happens to her there it's just she's like it's very cold and it's stuffy tell them to open a window (laughs) (laughs) but the windows close by themselves and so do the doors and you can't do anything about this um but yeah the climax itself as 
all of that had happened, it doesn't take place in one night, which I think is a mistake. Mm, okay. It's, I, I know they're trying to go through the madness a little bit slower, but I think because so much is happening or could happen in that night, it could go fast that it really should. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like they're trying to send her home, but why, why would you wait so long to send her home? If it's all happening kind of faster, mm. I think it would make more sense. Like, no, we gotta, we gotta send you away. Do not come back here. Yeah. Yeah. So you're not making me want to read it, I think. Whereas whereas really? when you described the film, you did make me want to watch it. With the mm. book, it feels like you're saying, yeah, there's some good parts, but you're not thrilled so, about it, maybe? No, I, I do like it. That's why I say it is a great book, but it's the reason I have that asterisk is because I saw the movie first. Mm. And that movie really impressed me, and I see what that book is. And there's some amazing parts. And then, like, okay, this five pages we can probably cut. And there's some really good parts. And then it's like, all right, we can probably cut these 20 pages. And then at the very end, like, it actually is a really good ending to it. So I do like some things like that. Okay. So if we divorce Um, it from the movie, forget about the movie, the book on its own, it's quite good. We would, I'd be happy with it. I I definitely would recommend it. Um, It's it's short enough that it's not like oh I'm spending a hundred pages just describing Paris or whatever. Yeah, it's <laughs> not using the the Anna Karenina method of five hundred pages of yeah. the farming manual. Yeah. So what I want to talk about with this as well is the movie because the movie cuts all of that type of stuff. It does the climax all in one night, and I it's one of my favorite movies of all time. So that's yeah. why I wanted to read the book. Um, I think the movie just kind of does it better. Because in the movie as well, the doctor's wife doesn't believe in ghosts. And she's like, oh, I'm going to show you that ghosts don't exist by sleeping in this room. She disappears and then like shows up eventually later, scares the life out of Eleanor. And Eleanor is then forced to leave. In this one, you don't have that type of leading up to it as much. Mm. You get there a different route. And I think that once you arrive there... It actually does some things better than the movie for the ending. Okay, it's very also, rare. I, I mean, like the route the movie made. You like the movie? Took. I've been there before where I've said the movie's better than the book, but it's very rare. It's it nine, nine times out of ten. You know, it's a, it's a bold claim to say this is one of the exceptions, but from your description of it, I think yeah, you, you it sounds like you're right. The they're both good, but the movie maybe just edges out slightly. Mm, I definitely would agree. I mean, you've seen the movie as well. You might remember the black and white movie. It's yeah. in like the nice mansion. It looks beautiful. It was good. And yeah, yeah. Um, definitely, definitely uh, one of my favorite movies. And I think the book, um, I, well, I have to thank the book uh, for that movie. And fair, fair. I, I would recommend people do that. I recommend not watching the 99 version or 98. I forget which one. Um and I've also heard good things about the Netflix series. Yeah, the Netflix series I actually wasn't aware of. So I only knew about uh, the I heard movies. that one actually gets scary instead of just creepy and goes more into the owners of um, owners of the uh, house originally. But I do want to end on one thing because I want to show how good the book 
can be. So the last main uh, sentence or two here in mm -hmm. the book. So it says, Hill House itself, not sane, stood against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for 80 years and might stand for 80 more. Within, its walls continued upright. Bricks met neatly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there, walked alone. And That's so nice. That it's well written. Yeah. That type of atmosphere is throughout most of the book. Okay. You lose it at unfortunate times, but um, I think there's enough there. Okay. Sounds it's good. I think that might be the first time we've actually reviewed a, a horror book, essentially, on, on the show. Well, wait till part two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to mix it up then, um, because the next book I read um, is a children's book. And you'll see this lovely, lovely cover here. Um, nice kind of retro cartoony vibes. And it's called Can We Play Baseball, Mr. DeMille? This is by Mark Angelo. And essentially what we have here, it's set in 1950s USA. And this guy is a big fan of the Dodgers. Now, I don't know what the Dodgers are because I'm not from uh, it's a baseball uh, team. You know, yeah. Well, I, I gathered that. Is this okay. is this a big thing? You know, is this a big famous team? Yeah, it's one of the biggest ones. Okay. Uh, coming from Northern Ireland, I've never seen the the uh, baseball, but the the animations of this book are spectacular. They're all this very old fifties style little um, family, you know. But the story is very nice. It's a true story. So technically, it's not even... It's a children's story, but it's not even fiction. Um, the author has a story where basically in his neighborhood was the famous Hollywood man, Cecil DeMille. Hmm. And his garden was the only place big enough to play baseball in the town or in the neighborhood that they lived in. Hmm. So they just started playing baseball in his garden, basically. And when they kind of got kicked out, the author took it upon himself and was like, you know, I'm going to be the hero of the group. I'm going to go to the door. I'm going to knock. I'm going to tell the butler, you know, I want to speak to Mr. DeMille. And I'd like to negotiate some terms here for us to play baseball in your yard. So it's very, it's it's just, it's nice. It's fun. It's a cool story. There's a bit of courage hmm. involved. And yeah, it's about some kids playing ball. There you go. One of the biggest, wasn't he a big producer? Yeah, yeah, Hollywood I can't and... name a movie offhand, but he's a big name. Yeah, I don't know. Back then. But he's, um, yeah, classic. Yeah. <laughs> Have you any insight to add to the idea of kids playing baseball? It's just something, it's it's very alien to me. We only really have, like, football here, so. Yeah, I mean, a lot of kids will join leagues in things. What this reminds me of the most is uh, the movie The Sandlot which I would recommend because it's a oh. classic uh, movie, um, especially for kids, though. Um, not that it's like has not that it's like talking down to kids. It's still pretty adult. My parents like it, too. OK, but it's about kids who just go and play baseball in what is it? a sandlot. And they nice. accidentally knock a super expensive ball into a neighbor's yard that they're really afraid of. And um comedy ensues but yeah it's like a coming of age story yeah that actually sounds kind of fun yeah 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 that's nice to so. 
Nice. Bear with me a second. We're just getting a call here. I'll be back in a few minutes. Hello, you're through to Books Boys. You've got Dean on the line. Who's calling? Hi, Dean. It's Mark Angelo calling from Vancouver, British Columbia. Nice to be with you. Mark, nice to have you on the call. I was just chatting to Alex about can we play baseball, Mr. Oh. DeMille? I, it's fantastic that you should call in just as we're we're chatting about it. Now, for, for, first thing I noticed before I even opened the book is this lovely, lovely illustration. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I have to say I, I'm thrilled with the illustrations in the book. Uh, uh, the illustrations are, are by Patricia and Robin DeWitt. And, uh, uh, and I think the illustrations have a great feel to them. Uh, and illustrations, especially in children's books, are... Play a hugely important role, yeah. and uh, uh, and I, I had seen their work before. I love their their the color of their illustrations. They have this great blend between kind of the comical side, but also with that sense of realism and and accuracy. and And I think they're a great complement to this story. So I was uh, I was thrilled to work with them. They they do incredible work. So this wasn't uh, you know a friend of yours. This was someone whose work you'd seen that you wanted to work with. Yes, yeah. I had seen their work uh, uh, a few years ago. They did a book called Brave with Beauty, a, a story of Afghanistan, which I thought was really cool. Uh, and then they did a book I saw after that called Two Cats, a Mermaid uh, and the mm. Disappearing Moon. And I knew just their style would fit in really well with th this concept, this vision I had for this mm -hmm. particular book. The style is lovely. I mean, and I, I love that, as you say, the colors this book obviously set in the 50s and the animations just kind of bring it to life with those slightly muted colors. It's very well done. I love it. Well, that was the intent. I was thrilled with how it turned out. So on from the illustrations, let's talk about the book itself. What question number one, this is, is this completely real? Is there some fictional elements? No, this is completely real. You know, the the children's books that I've written the, the last few years, they've all been true stories, but I've also tried to incorporate some important messaging in them mm -hmm. uh, from my perspective. But I think the story itself, Can We Play Baseball, Mr. DeMille? I, I think it's a timely story. Uh, it's fun and uplifting. It has uh, elements of nostalgia. I think it speaks to the uh, the importance and the impact of youthful determination. Uh, there even is a bit of an environmental message to it that I'll speak about in a little bit. But uh, but it's a true story from my own childhood, set in 1958. It's a story that my brother and I often laughed about. Uh, but it, it tells of a young boy uh, and his friends and their love of a game uh, and their very difficult search for a place to play ball. Uh, which in turn leads to this incredible encounter with a, a Hollywood legend. Uh, and it's the kindest story because there are so many different elements to it. It's the kindest story that I hope children uh, will identify with. I believe they will. And uh, it does center on a shy but determined mm. young boy. But also for parents, I think it will hopefully get them thinking back to their own childhood and, and get them smiling in the process. Hopefully. Well, I want to ask you what the main messages you want for kids, because there's going to be two levels, I guess. The first level is, sure, a kid can look at the book and think, oh, I like to play games. They're trying to play games. Cool. I can identify with that. But then what, what do you really want them to take away from it on a, on a more meaningful level? Well, I think there are lots of different elements. You know, there's elements around, you know, tenacity and believing in something and pursuing it. Uh, 
there are elements around overcoming nervousness, uh, which as a boy I had to do before I actually went up to meet with <laughs> Mr. DeMille. You have to say, hey, I have to do this. Uh, you know, there are some fun elements, you know, around nostalgia and old Hollywood, but most importantly as well, I, I think there's a, uh, an important message uh, uh, about just how significant and important nearby outdoor spaces to play are. Yeah. Uh, you know, for instance, um, um, I, lo I look at my own background, you know, I've been a, an environmental advocate, uh, you know, my whole life. And, and writing this book made me even more cognizant of, of how my own childhood search for a place to play ball, how that influenced my later work as an environmental advocate and a proponent for accessible outdoor spaces for everyone mm. to enjoy. Uh, and I know that as a child, I lived up in the, the Hollywood Hills. Uh, I loved where I lived, uh, uh, but the bottom line is there were few places to play anywhere nearby. Uh, public parks were a long way away. And I yeah. think in many, many cities, you know, that's an unfortunate reality sometimes. So I try to make the point that, uh, accessible outdoor spaces for all young and old that they're important uh, whether it be parks or sports fields or, or outdoor spaces uh, they contribute greatly to our our health our well-being and absolutely most and most importantly they make our communities better places to live they do indeed and it's something that we need you know obviously if you grew up in the countryside you're fortunate to have a lot of open space in cities it's it's a lot tougher and i think that's something that whether it's local councils or, or governments or whatever, but we need to set some spaces aside, green space, something for the kids to play in, but also just somewhere for the adults to sit on a park bench, enjoy the enjoy the day, you know, do some reading. We need some open spaces. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more, Dean, you know, and the fact is so many of our cities are growing so rapidly. Uh, they're becoming uh, uh, more intensively developed, you know, uh, uh, and, and I think we have to, to really think up front uh, about mm -hmm. the importance of those outdoor spaces and, and do whatever we can to protect them. You know, it's interesting. I, I think today uh, there's a, a great interest uh, on and a great focus on things like personal screen time, you know, spending time on our computers, our, our iPhones. Yeah. And I totally understand having grandkids. I, I know how captivating that can be. <laughs> But at the same time, I, I think for anyone, especially kids, you have to balance that with time spent outdoors. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and playing outside does make us happier. It makes us healthier. But to do that, we have to ensure that we have those outdoor spaces mm -hmm. for kids to play in. And this type of stuff isn't new to you. I mean, I'm, I've been reading a little bit. Um, when I looked at the book, I thought, okay, let's see who this chap is. Um, we've got your previous book, the little creek that the little creek that could. So you're writing about a stream coming back to life. So those are the type of themes that you're interested in. And of course, you've got the World Rivers Day. So tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, in my career, you know, I, I, gosh, going back to my youth, I always had this interest in the environment, this interest in rivers, creeks, and streams. The, um, um. World Rivers Day is an event that, gosh, uh, I, I've been very fortunate as a paddler. You know, I've been a very, gosh, avid paddler my whole life. I've been fortunate to travel rivers in, in much of the world. And I always felt there was a need to celebrate the importance of our river heritage, mm -hmm. you know, because our rivers contribute so much 
you know, they have these amazing natural and cultural and recreational values, whether that be a small community creek or stream or a big river. Uh, so we started this idea of Rivers Day in British Columbia going back in 1980, and it grew to be this massive event. And then in 2005, the United Nations launched their UN Water for Life decade. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to have an event that focused on the importance mm. of rivers and streams and, and the need to protect them and better care for them uh, as part of that? So we made a pitch to the United Nations about establishing World Rivers Day, various agencies of the UN, we got them to agree and World Rivers wow. Day took off. And it's now celebrated in well over a uh, hundred countries, including Ireland. Mm -hmm. um, and it, yeah, there's a mix of uh, all kinds of events, uh, stream cleanups, uh, nice. uh, Riverside uh, and, and restoration projects, uh, community environmental celebrations, educational events. Mm -hmm. So it's been great to see. And it's September, right? It's always the fourth Sunday in September. You know, this year it'll be September 24th. If people are interested in that, they can just look at worldriversday.com and it will give them information about some of the activities taking place around the world. Fantastic. So I want to ask you, why did you write the book? You know, what what was the motivation? That, that sounds like, what, 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 why on earth have you done this? No, it's fantastic. But what made you sit and write it now? You know, what was the reason that it's done now? You know, it's a story that... Uh, my brother and I told many, many times over the years, I used to talk about it with my folks and my friends. And uh, um, and I always thought it was a really good story, uh, a fun story. Um, but in the early days of COVID, my brother got quite ill and I, I went down to visit him. And, you know, we spent a lot of our time telling stories of our youth. We mm. spent a lot of our time watching old TV shows from the late 50s that we watched as kids. Yeah, nice. And anyway, this particular story, I told it again, and Chris laughed. My brother's name was Chris. He laughed and laughed. And he said, Mark, one day you should write that. Uh, well, my brother passed away shortly thereafter. And I thought, well, this is the time I should write it. And as you've seen uh, in the first page, it is dedicated to the memory mm -hmm. of my brother. And I think he'd be thrilled that, that I finally sure. wrote the book. And my brother is referenced a few times in the book itself. Fantastic. It's good to do that, you know, to get those stories out there, especially if you've got one that you know it's funny, it's going to be one that people will like and relate to you know and there's even a little photograph of yourself there in 1958 and your uh your baseball uh gear the, that's what i looked like in 1958 <laughs> and uh you know it, it's interesting uh as you see in that photo i'm wearing my la dodger hat and uh because the dodgers were my team as a boy uh the los angeles dodgers had just moved to la and the whole city was kind of baseball crazy dodger mania was mm. at its peak back then uh, but, you know, we mentioned the illustrations earlier. I wanted to use some of the baseball logos, you mm. know, that I wore so much as a kid. And um, so uh, I approached Major League Baseball about getting a license use agreement to use their logos. And and they agreed. And that was important to me because, uh, you know, I wanted the book and the illustrations to be as accurate as possible uh, uh, and certainly including the logos and al allowing us to show the LA Dodger logo uh, uh, on our hats as kids. Uh, I thought that was important. So anyway, it's been wonderful to work with Major League Baseball in that capacity as well. Right. 
And it's very nice of them, you know, to let you do that as well. And, and it just gives that extra layer of kind of realism to the story, you know, as well, that we've got the logos there and everything. How important are the Dodgers to you today? And is baseball still still big for you? You know, it's interesting. I, I still enjoy baseball, you know. Uh, I don't follow it as closely as I did as a child. I was just passionate about it, but I still very much enjoy it. Uh, you know, I think in the U.S. and in Canada and North America in particular, uh, you know, baseball is loved by a lot of people. Uh, for me, I remember as a kid, I loved the aesthetics of the game. I loved the strategy. I loved the fun of being in a roaring crowd, which is a wonderful part of, of any sport. Uh, for baseball, I always loved the sounds of the game, you know, the ball uh -huh. hitting the glove or the the smack of a ball when it hit yeah. a bat or the the sound of a runner sliding into home plate. Um, another thing, the ballparks, you know, are incredible too. I remember when I first started following the Dodgers, uh, they played in a stadium called the LA Coliseum. It wasn't an attractive stadium, really. It was a huge, massive bowl that could seat up to a hundred thousand people. But in the early sixties, they built Dodger stadium. And I remember when I first saw it, oh, I was blown away by its beauty. And it's interesting, whether you're an avid soccer fan, you look at stadiums around the world, whether you're an avid soccer fan or baseball fan, uh, there's some gorgeous stadiums out there. Mm. That, or or even this past weekend, I watched Wimbledon, you know, and the the, the center stadium, you know, at, at Wimbledon is this beautiful stadium in its own yeah. right. So stadiums for a lot of sports become iconic in their own right and a really mm -hmm. important part of the game. So anyway, for all those reasons, I loved baseball and I still love it. Uh, it's just that in my youth, much of my life totally centered around baseball. Centered, right, yeah. No, you've got other other concerns, I suppose. <laughs> well, well, no, I like that. I like to balance, you know, my passion for things like uh, the environment and my second, if you had to say, what are my passions in life? They'd be my family, my grandkids. Mm -hmm. They would be uh, the environment, rivers and streams, but also baseball would be in that list. Still well. there. Well, you segued nicely into my final kind of question for you. I was relating to the grandkids. Was this written specifically with them in mind to read this? <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I got into children's books the last few years. Be, my grandkids were a big inspiration. Uh, and I had a few stories, all true stories, whether it be this one or my previous book, The Little Creek That Could, true stories, but that also had a bit of a message. Uh, so yeah, my grandkids were a, a big inspiration. Uh, I thought it would be a, a book that both they and other children could identify with. Uh, I think any child, when you talk about a kid's desire to play or their determination or the nervousness they feel sometimes mm. in meeting an individual like Mr. DeMille, who was a Hollywood legend, perhaps the greatest person in film back then, and some would argue he still is, uh, but also for parents in that I, I think it uh, it casts them back to a, a simpler time, those special years in our youth when uh, during the summer, you know, when our time, you know, every day it's centered around playing with our friends. And yeah. So, so my hope days. is it'll make them smile in the process. And my objective for any book that I write is to produce a fun book that parents can enjoy reading aloud with their kids mm. and then in turn have some good conversations about it afterwards. Have some discussion. Fantastic. Well, Mark, before I let you go, would you like to tell us where we can get the book? Do you want to plug your website or anything like that? Well, Dean, thank you. Yeah, the website is 
can we play baseball, Mr. DeMille? And that's all one word, dot com. And DeMille is spelled uh, D-E-M-I-L-L-E. And you can order the book through Amazon, uh, but also uh, you can order it through a variety of carriers, probably easier to get online. But if they just were to uh, Google the title, Can We Play Baseball, Mr. DeMille, you'd come up with lots of options in terms of how you could buy the book. Cool. Fantastic. The very last question then that we ask to all of our authors, um, I'm going to catch you slightly off guard. If there's any book that exists that you wish you had been the person to create, what would that be? (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh that's uh, uh you know i have to say uh, i've always had a love for the environment for rivers for fish uh and i just happened to reread a book that i read back in ni- the early 1960s as a kid uh that uh, uh and i must admit i totally enjoyed it and i it's, this is just out of the blue i wasn't expecting to answer this question but I, I reread The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Lovely. And, Good choice. Uh, I love the book. And to me, you know, I'm passionate about the environment. I'm passionate about fish. And I do love to fish. You know, I fished in a lot of countries. I'm an avid fly fisher. But uh, I read that and I thought it was such a good story. I've told the story to my grandkids. But that's certainly a book I would have loved to have written long ago. Okay, thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Enjoy the rest of your day. Dean, great talking to you. Thank you for your interest. Bye-bye. Well, there we go. Nice coincidence. Mark Angelo calling in uh, just as we were chatting about his book, Can We Play Baseball, Mr. DeMille? Um, It's a good one for the kids. Go check it out. Well, there we go. Um, There's no point in me doing slick edits. We've already announced that we're recording the show in two parts, so we're going to pause it. We'll see you in part two. (laughs)